Hello, Brandon. Hey, Tom. How are you? I'm surviving, actually. This attic business, the dust kind of accumulated in my lungs, and I've had allergies all week. So if I sound a little hoarse, it's purely from uh, the attic experience last weekend. Of course, doing the yard work as well probably didn't help. The pollen counters up here, but uh, let's suffer through it. Yeah, that's brutal. We have a wide variety of bits and pieces of listener feedback, and I wanted to send a shout-out to Carmine Ceratelli Jr. He has counted the word seminal, and he said in the first five episodes, seminal was used 72 times. So, (laughs) shout-outs to him. Probably exclusively by me. I'm not sure. Is seminal a word you use regularly? (laughs) Not at all. Very good. So... I want a second listener to go and actually count the occurrences. I'm not sure whether Carmine's joking or not, but uh, anyway, shout-outs to Carmine. We have a couple of questions from a listener as well, which is very interesting. Now, I'm not sure whether we call him Jesus Manet or whether we call him Jesus Manet, but anyway, let's call him Jesus. He asks, I'm a big cinephile, so I was wondering what your favourite directors were. Why don't you start with that, Brent? Mm, I really, I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just like, I like movies. I don't like looking at who makes them. I don't like thinking about the crew that's there shooting it. I just like to get lost in the movie. Fair enough. And I, I really don't focus. Of course, I like Kubrick's movies and I like John Landis. And yeah, you know, there's a ton, but I really never read the credits. Mm. I don't get involved in any of that. Yeah. So there's probably, I have like, I couldn't even tell you who did any of the Rambos, you know, mm. I could, <laughs> so, you know, um, but yeah, how about you, Tom? My view is actually that making a film is a really difficult thing and to do it well is really difficult. Now I have, I have a few directors that I like, but they've also made films that really, really suck. Yeah. And I think just consistency is really difficult because I mean, for example, well, I actually took notes on this. Joel Schumacher, I like a couple of his movies, but some of his movies, like, I like them, but they have Nicolas Cage in them, which immediately means that they stink, and his uh, acting just, like, ruins the film. So, I don't know, it's it's difficult to find directors that are, you know, consistently good. So, I'm with you, actually. I like I like films. Directors, they come and go. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I don't like thinking about that there's, you know, a whole bunch of people looking at these guys, and they're doing it over and over again. I, I, I just try to block that out. Jesus continues to ask, on one of the episodes, Brandon said he created a board game, and Jesus is interested what that was all about. Oh, I did I did lots of board games. I still have them sitting around. <laughs> I mean, just all different stupid stuff. Some are more physical, I guess you'd say, rather than actually on a board game. But um, I would take, I would get like actual boards, paint them over, and then just try to come up with ideas for games. And I would even like print my own currency up for them and make my own pieces and stuff. And uh, they're all over the place, literally. Uh, <laughs> so, like, I mean, when you mentioned currency, Monopoly comes to mind. Were they based, yeah, some based on Monopoly? I, well, I did. I had one that was like based on Monopoly and you had to go around and just get all these items. It was basically like you had to like, it was like a mall and you had to go through the different stores in the mall, mm. but it was sort of like a rip off of Monopoly because I had a Monopoly board. So I was like, oh, I'll do like a, a more fun version of Monopoly that doesn't take forever, <laughs> but it's actually probably pretty hideous and no one want to play it. I don't, oh, I don't know. I'd have to get it out and look at it again. This is like back in the early 90s, you know, when I was still in high school. Mm. You mentioned the comic book that you left in Vermont. Certainly 
for me, beach houses were places that I would go periodically and certainly at least annually with as a family. And I'd have school friends that would come with me occasionally and this kind of stuff. And I always found games like Strategio. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. It's like a, a little bit. Yeah, it's like a strategy game. But after you play that 20 times, it gets a little bit boring. You want to mix it up and you want to change the rules accordingly. So I certainly understand where you're coming from associated with taking a well-loved game and just make it that little bit more interesting. We had, um, you know, as people, after they graduate and they move away, you don't see your friends as much. I would try to get people together at like Christmas time. And I got oh, yeah. a couple of friends from high school and it would be like, I'd tell them, I said, look, we might not even do this again for like 10 years or ever. And we would set up, we would just play different games. Sometimes we play football outside or something, but mm-hmm. we played Monopoly a couple of times and it was it was awesome. I should have recorded it, but there was like these huge like side bartering deals going on and guys trading. And then we had like other tables set up where I had my one friend like doing contracts. So these two guys had to like obey these contracts. And this, it went on for like all throughout the night. It was awesome, but it was, it was, it was definitely, yeah, straight off the beaten path of like normal, normal board games. Jesus is also curious if either of us know about the genre of music called Jersey Club and Philly Club. Nope. So I have, I have a slight sideline story here, which is associated with what I loosely refer to as a crack house in suburbia. I have a long-standing acquaintance with a phone hacker called John Draper or Captain Crunch. I've known him since I was about 18. And he's like a legendary hacker who, you know, knew Wozniak and Jobs and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, he wanders around various parts of the U.S. meeting people. And one of the most curious people he met was a producer for the Miami Sound, which is like Miami bass music that came out. I don't know, like Gloria Estefan and this kind of stuff. But anyway, yeah, yeah. He, he produced this one guy who I'm not going to mention because it'll connect who he is. Anyway, they had a house in Las Vegas that John Draper Crunch would go to periodically and I'd periodically visit him. And it had like gold, when I first went there, it had gold records on the wall and all this kind of stuff. And it was like, you know, a history of Miami club music. And then progressively as these things go, they had a startup that wasn't getting funded. And I'd go back periodically and they'd sell off the gold records and eventually they'd sell off the light switches. And you'd go in and there'd just be like dark areas and the air conditioning wasn't working and they'd run out of food. And my view is that that style of music, I mean, whatever club style of music it is, doesn't really have a longevity in certain areas. And if you base your life on that thing, you'll almost end up with this kind of crack house and suburbia circumstance. So I have a general disdain for, I mean, I like, you know, I like club music. I used to DJ when I was, you know, university, what have you, and I DJ in nightclubs. And I do like bass heavy music. But um, when it's your life and you, like, obsess about this one thing and this is, like, your one thing in the world, you end up in strange circumstances. So I, I will leave that for Jesus, and I'm sure he will not correspond with us ever again. So thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Were there any board games at the Beach House that you visited? Oh, uh, the Beach House um, versus the Crack House in Suburbia. The Beach yeah. House, yeah, Stratego was a big one. We also took board games there. And most of these Beach Houses you'd go to – and there'd be, like, surf magazines and stuff. And if you'd be lucky, there'd be one board game. But because we rent the house, we ended up going to one place called Merry Beach, which we rented out probably seven years in a row. And I think we ended up, like, buying secondhand board games. Of course, Monopoly was there. 
There's sort of checkers. The one game Mousetrap. You remember the game Mousetrap? Oh, yeah. It's always missing pieces. Exactly. That's exactly the phenomenon. So, <laughs> yeah, like, we'd make, like, wire mouse traps, and I remember the, like, the teeth in the cog thing were broken, and the one with the kind of electrified body where you had to try and remove stuff. Oh, yeah, Operation. Operation, yes. And um, Guess Who? But the funny thing with Guess Who, which had, like, flip things, and you said, oh, does the person have a mustache or whatever? That oh, was dear. missing... That was missing plastic bits, too. So we had to, like, interpolate, like, what potential faces existed in those things. So, yeah, a bunch of broken board games, which were, you know, moderate interest. But by that point, I also played Dungeons & Dragons. So, I mean, that was the main thing that we played when we went there. Just, like, months' worth of Dungeons & Dragons condensed into seven, eight days, basically. <laughs> I got Guess Who. It's like, I could touch it. It's, it's real close. Very good. <laughs> and you have all the pieces? Is it like original form guessing? Yeah, 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 it's all there. Very good. <laughs> yeah, very, very good. dusty. So, topics that you have suggested for this recording. This is something that I knew nothing about, but you put in corked baseball bats. <laughs> I, I actually had to research this one. I had to read about the... Because, I mean, my view... I forget that, you know, baseball bats are actually part of like a sport versus double dragon. I mean, I guess I just think of them as home, you know, home protection items as opposed to <laughs> actually associated with a sport. Where did, there where did was, this topic come from? I don't know. That just sort of popped in my head. I was eating lunch, but th uh, there was um, this player, Sammy Sosa. Yeah. He would like, uh, you know, him and Maguire were going for the home run record. And, uh, <laughs> um, and I guess they did break it, but I don't remember exactly. But I remember somebody had said that he – he broke a bat in in batting practice and it was or maybe it was in the game. He broke a bat in the game, actually, and it was corked yes. in front of everybody. And then he said, uh, oh, I was just using that to hit home runs to the fans like in warm ups. <laughs> and I thought that was he like got a seven days. He got a seven game suspension <laughs> from that. I mean, this is what I remember from reading up about it. <laughs> I just thought the guy's already hitting tons of home runs, and then he has a cork bat. It's so awesome. But I don't know. I never tried a cork bat. I wondered how, how awesome it is. I mean, I mean how far can you hit it? We probably should explain the controversy of this thing. Cork bats are from 1970, I think, are illegal in the game. They enable you to nominally hit the ball harder and faster because they're lighter, basically, so they swing through the air faster. I mean, that's that's the rub, basically. That's it? I thought there was like a corked center. Yeah, it's a cork center, but it's the weight of the bat being lighter, which enables the batter to flip it faster, basically, and get more speed on the ball. Okay. That's why they're what illegal. You, what did you say about the 70s? They, they, they were they, using them in the 70s? No, 1970 is when it became illegal in the sport of baseball to have a corked bat. So, like, uh, guys before that could use it? Uh, apparently so. But, I mean, it's interesting. It's, like, it's pre-steroids. Let me let me refer to Wikipedia, which is where I got the information from. Okay, yeah, uh, man, I don't know. Maybe you're right. Corked base. That's I didn't know anything about this topic. I literally just <laughs> typed it into Wikipedia. Corked bat. Here we go. Since nine. Oh, okay. Sorry, sorry. It's since 1976. Players have been caught using cork base. Oh, bats. okay. So that's the issue. No, you're pretty the, right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, the thing about it is. The density, actually, no, people used it in the 90s as well. I mean, this is kind of, this is kind of the romantic period of baseball, like pre-steroid testing. It was yeah. a corked bat, which made you hit the ball faster. 
I think Art Webb had a good out, outlook on this. And uh, he would say, like, just let them all use whatever they want. And then they won't be able to cheat anymore if it's just the free game. And he's like, you'll just have these gigantors just hitting home runs all the time. Mm. But then the pitchers will get better and you won't have to test anybody. I say, yeah, I like that art. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, um, they'd have breasts and things as well. I mean, there'd be a whole series of like benefits in the long term. So, yeah, no, I think strange mutant steroid pumped athletes i mean yeah it's definitely the way to go i I think chainsaws as well would probably make the sport more interesting (laughs) how about uh stickum from the nfl i'm not familiar with that stickum is like i'm not even sure but i think it's some kind of like something they would put on their gloves or on their hands that was like an adhesive like a like a goo i thought you could actually like like a glue they would put on and so they could make these like ridiculous catches but i just remember hearing about guys like really laying it on like just just stick them all over their hands you know just being able to catch but i think that's a like thing from the 70s and then i I think they cut that back interesting interesting yeah (laughs) i mean yeah sticky hands Mm, interesting okay yeah you also put down perhaps a topic that we could talk more coherently about awful mob movies. Oh yeah, we started to go into some movies. We I don't know something from last time mm. reminded me of it. Well, what do you, you got any off the let top me, of your head? Let me let me ask this question for how do you rate The Sopranos in its full <sighs> session? What, what's your view on The Sopranos? I, I there's parts I really like, and then there's parts I'm just I'm. I don't know. I don't. I'm not really. I'm like. I better watch it to get my HBO's worth mm. of money. But I agree. I'll put it this way: I wouldn't go. I have HBO. I wouldn't go back and watch almost any of them. I've never. Like, I'll go back and watch like Band of Brothers. I'll go back and watch like Deadwood. I'll go back and watch Rome. But I will. I've never gone back and watched it. And I like a lot of the characters. And there's some really good episodes. But it's just not i don't know i i just i don't know it's not really not for me i guess i have a theory about this and it's associated with episodic content about five years ago a guy contacted me and he was interested in noble ape my simulation and we corresponded for maybe three or four emails and i realized that he had like this strange signature at the bottom of his email and i was like what's what's this roman films why does that sound familiar anyway he's the background he, like, manages all the background art on The Simpsons. Oh, okay. And, and I've been corresponding with a friend. He's an interesting guy, a fascinating guy, in fact. I have a notion of The Simpsons ratio, and it's out of five episodes, one will be amazingly brilliant, and two will be watchable, and the remaining two can be garbage. But that is the ratio that will get me back watching something on a periodic basis. And I think this probably exists in the real world, that if you make episodic content over long periods of time, you need to have, as you say, those one one great episode and then maybe two that are watchable and then, you know, two. And some of the shows, you know, they have one great episode every seven. I've gone back and watched every couple of years I go back and watch The Sopranos and I view them as, as you do, except I very rarely find things to watch on TV and sometimes I just want to watch TV. So I don't know. So I must have done this three times since the show ended. And my view is you take any male actor on The Sopranos, to a lesser extent Gandolfini, but any of the other major male characters, and you look up their reference on IMDb, and there will be half a dozen really, really awful mob movies that they've participated in. 
And I think The Sopranos is like the epicenter of bad mob movies associated with the actors from that. And there are just so many bad mob movies. There's so many bad ones. Uh, yeah, I don't know. So, something about it. Now you make me want to go watch a couple episodes. See if I see if I like it more. I don't know. I think it's because it's so current. I kind of like the older mob movies. I, I don't know. Maybe that's it. But well, I'm, I I actually did this leading up to our recording this evening, and I loaded up IMDb on my phone, which I never like to do, and I started going through them. And most of the really bad mob movies are from like after Goodfellas came out. Yeah. There was a period from about 91 through to about 95 where (laughs) everyone was trying to make the next Goodfellas. And they became more and more outlandish and less and less like plot and credibility and heists and people getting whacked. Like mob movies in general. I mean, Godfather 1 and 2 loosely based on. Goodfellas obviously based on something. But if it's not based on anything, then it's going to be slightly quizzical at best. And oftentimes really, really, really bad. <laughs> yeah, there's some, some, I don't know, some are so bad. Uh, Mobsters is pretty bad. Um, I don't how, know. How do you write, um, what's it called? Is it called The Bronx Tale? I never really liked it. No, I didn't either. I know. It had like a huge thing, but I, I never got into it. I think the nature, and again, multiple Sopranos actors in that particular. There's a fellow called Joe Ganascoli who played Vito on The Sopranos. When I lived in Vegas, I was podcasting, as you know, because you appeared on Model Rail Radio. There were like three or four different kinds of podcasts that were done in Vegas. Strip-related podcasts, which talked about all the shows and what have you. And I tried to meet up with as many podcasters as I could. One of the podcasters that I spent a bit of time with had a cigar podcast and he was actually like roughly my age, what have you. And Joe Ganascoli, who played Vito on The Sopranos, constantly was on his podcast. He was probably one of the most, I don't know, he's just like a publicity kind of nut individual. And um, when Gandolfini died, he was the first person in all the media. Like he just came out and just like did all the media. So I understand that these actors are probably terribly, you know, typecast. And I mean, Ganniscoli had everything. He had a cigar. He had a pasta sauce. He had pasta. He had basically every possible tie-in and a bunch of roles in awful mob movies. But yeah, you've got to wonder about these actors that I guess they just have to feature in, you know, a dozen or so really bad mob movies in order to get the one or two bit parts that they can survive through and be known for. So, yeah. Yeah, that's... Well, who's Vito on The Sopranos? Remind me. Uh, he's the guy that lost a lot of weight. He's the gay. He's the gay gangster, basically. Who, oh yeah, he yeah. had the long hair. No, 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 no. That was um. That no. Was early on in the Furio. Oh yeah, I liked Furio. No, That's right. This was I, um. <laughs> this is like season four. Well, actually, he's in season two as an incidental character, but he comes to the forefront in season four, five, and six. Becomes Capo in season five and is outed in season six, basically. God, I can't even remember. No, he's he's uh, fat forgettable. I mean, he really is. So uh, anyway. When it was on, I couldn't wait to see it. Mm. But the going back, you know, I'm like, well, I don't know. I wasn't in the US for a majority of it. In fact, I wasn't in the US and I didn't have HBO for most of it being on. For me, it was coming back to the US 
and staying, particularly when I was on the East Coast, I, when I was working for Ericsson, I worked out of Maryland and there's just some really amazing like Italian American restaurants around the DC belt. So, you know, I'd go out and I'd have a really nice Italian American meal and then I'd come back and I'd put on the Sopranos and I'd just watch it for a few episodes. They had it on in the UK as well, but it was a censored version of it, which was very, very curious. That's got to be horrible. You yes. know something? Goodfellas is hysterical when they censor it on TV. It's mm. almost better. The words they when they add the words in, it's just, oh, I I live to see it on TV when they when they add the the when they don't just bleep it out. That's yes. like one of the best things. <laughs> yeah, the film was, and actually that was the interesting thing about the UK Sopranos was that they had the actors actually speak the censored words. Yeah, yeah, it's funny, man. Um. <laughs> In fact, it was so funny that a, a British comedy show actually did their own rendition of The Sopranos on UK television. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I'd like to see that. I will look it up. No doubt YouTube has it. No, <laughs> I'm sure they do. Oh, man. How about Boardwalk Empire? I've never watched Boardwalk Empire. That, here's the problem. I got burnt by vinyl. And when I was thinking of Martin Scorsese, immediately vinyl came to mind when, um, you know, with, with Jesus's question. Because vinyl for me, I missed Bulwark Empire. And then it's like, oh, then this vinyl thing's on. I like music. Vinyl's so bad. Have you seen vinyl? I, I didn't even, I, no, I didn't even watch the first one. So I never watched it ever. It's Winters, who I think did Bulwark Empire, Scorsese, and a few other of Bulwark Empire people. And it's really unbelievably bad. I need to go back and watch Boardwalk Empire. It's, um, yeah, some of the shows, like, I mean, I, I watch Game of Thrones, mm -hmm. but I love to just fast forward through stuff. I'm like, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> let's get to the good stuff. I'm like, can we get some Moondor in this episode? You know, I'm yes. like, come on. But, yeah, I do. Yeah, I mean, I liked the HBO at a show. It was like, I don't even know if it was a whole season. It was called John from Cincinnati. I really liked it. And then it was like gone. I was like, yeah. come on. Yeah. But I, I don't think, think anyone else did. The thing with Game of Thrones is it is, it's the Sopranos with swords. I mean, there's a, there's so much filler content and it's the fast cuts and it's the 17 different storylines all being told in a kind of continuous narrative. I mean, it's all the stuff from the Sopranos, but with swords. So, Who do you like on there? Who's your favorite? On Game of Thrones? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I don't... I'm I'm pretty... I flip between them. I think... Um, I like the little guy. I mean, I think he's... You know... I like Khaleesi. I mean, I like all of them to a certain extent. I think the... The incidental bit characters interest me because they've got, like, a number of UK actors and a few Australian actors that I never see. And then I just see them, incidentally... Noah Taylor, who was in the movie Shine, he played like the middle period of uh, of Healthcott's life. I love Noah Taylor, and wherever I see Noah Taylor, and he has a bit part in, in Game of Thrones. So I who see is a lot he? of. He's the guy that cuts whatever the guy to the king, the Lannister guy's hand off. So he only has a bit oh, part. Oh yeah, in. yeah, that's right. Yeah, the thing about Game of Thrones is the guy who wrote it, who's called uh, what is it, JJ. He's got a similar name to a guy that died recently. Oh, my goodness. Welcome to my Saturday evening, folks. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the guy who wrote Game of Thrones is probably one of the most interesting, you know, fantasy aficionado folk. And he absolutely loves, like, miniature gaming 
and Dungeons and Dragons, all this kind of stuff. And he lives in Arizona. He's a DeLorean, amongst other things. Ah. So he, in and of himself, is it's uh, it's R. R. Martin. That's what it is. It's the same guy who did the Beatles. Because when when the Beatles Martin guy died, I put R. I. P. on my Facebook page, and everyone thought I was talking about the Game of Thrones guy. So anyway. I think he's an interesting character. I think the books are really, really laboured. And I think the show's pretty laboured as well. And really, it's not fantasy. You know, it's more soap opera than anything. When we lived in the UK, we watched British soap operas for about two years. We were there for, I don't know, four years. For two years, we decided, because it's a cultural thing, we're going to watch soap operas in the UK, mainly just EastEnders. And it's just horrible. Like, it's really... (laughs) They, the whole ruse is they give you a character, you develop a relationship with the character, and then the character never can get to its goal, its end goal. And instead, they're tortured. Many of them are murdered. Their children <laughs> are sexually abused. You just go through all these things and you're just like, why am I emotionally involved with this constant, and again, constant cutting, constant scene cutting. And you're just kind of emotionally involved with these horrible people as they go through their just tortured lives, and that's Game of Thrones, basically, except (laughs) in a fantasy land. So once you see that, once you see that, like, soap opera archetype, and the soap opera folk in the UK, they they don't pull any punches. They let everyone know the whole purpose of this thing is to get you passionately involved with characters and then absolutely ruin their lives in front of you. (laughs) EastEnders, is that what it's called? EastEnders, yes. Oh, I gotta see this. It's gone on for probably 25 years now. So we just saw a small portion of it. <laughs> oh, man. So what else do we have in the notes here? I'm sorry, I'm a little short of voice this evening. Oh, oh, actually, no, let's do Favourite Bird first. <laughs> oh, I forgot about this. Yeah, all right. Uh, favourite Birds. Oh, Toucan's pretty cool, but I like a, uh, <laughs> a seagull. Seagulls? <laughs> well, yes, a seagull is by far my favourite. Interesting. How about you? So, I don't get to see a lot of birds normally. But when I go back to Australia, my mother has a condo that has a large eucalypt in front of it. She lives basically on the water in Sydney. It's a very nice location. But she's in a condo, so she's got a bunch of elderly neighbours that all hate each other around her. Get in there. You always have jet lag, really bad jet lag, because I'm flying from the US to Australia. Sit just out and watch the birds land in the trees. Five to ten different kinds of birds, usually in large flocks. My favourite of the group, however, are called galahs. They're pink on the breast and they have kind of grey wings. And they're probably not the most raucous, but they're really very curious birds. And I've realised, actually doing some background research, they live to 40 years of age. So when you imagine, they're you know, they live to as old as we are. When you imagine... The life of a bird, normally, you think a life expectancy maybe 10 years at most. These birds live 40 years in large flock. So they're basically batshit crazy for the last 30 years of their lives. And they're just like socially surrounded by other crazy birds, constantly squawking and talking and doing all this other stuff. So your galahs are probably my favourite. You'd think magpies, having heard the previous discussion. Did you ever look at the YouTube video of the kid being swooped by the magpie? Yeah, that was hysterical. That's what it's that like. Thing was, oh, my God. That thing was attacking him. I was like, you need a mm. helmet. That's exactly what you need. Lee Webb would tell me about these birds in Australia that would be, uh, he would always say they were, they would say, cocky eye, cocky eye. Is, is there a cocky eye or a cock eye? No, there's a cockatoo. 
Yeah, he he said these birds would scream this at his, I guess, his sister's house or something. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. There are all kinds of birds in Australia that talk, so yeah. Are there any poisonous birds? Poisonous birds? My brother had a cockatiel when he was maybe 11, and he got um, avarian flu from the cockatiel. Really? Yeah. The wings of the bird let out a powder, which give long-term flu-like symptoms. He had to take um, airborne antibiotics and stuff. It was horrible. Ah. So, yes, there are poisonous birds. Yeah. Dude, everything in Australia is poisonous. Nearly everything. Nearly everything. I'm sure there's (laughs) Yeah. Most poisonous. So, you put down something which I thought actually was a really fascinating topic. And I had to think about it. I think I had to think about it really hard because I thought I've got to do this specifically associated with this podcast. Well, the recording and various other aspects of this podcast. You put down compliments time. Let's pay each other three compliments. (laughs) It is time for compliments time. Join us while we appreciate one another. Shall I begin? Doesn't sound perverse at all. Please do. Tom, I think you have a really nice voice. Well, thank you. it's smooth and relaxing, and it goes perfect on a Saturday night. Very good. Now, now it's your turn. Brandon, I really appreciate the effort you put in to recording Attic Aficionados. You come oh. with topics, fascinating topics, week after week. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Tom, I am grateful and appreciate that you put up with the horrible topics I come up with every week. Like sandwiches and other things like that that make no sense and i just think you do a wonderful job at fending me off (laughs) i really appreciate the reverence that you put into the mundane i think the things that are important in this world things like sea glass and building sandcastles and having them washed over with water this is lost on a new generation but I think it's important that we memorialize these topics, and I really respect you for the reverence that you show each week to these topics. Well, thank you, Tom. I just wanted to tell you that I am grateful and forever grateful for your knowledge of KitchenAid parts, and not just your knowledge, but that I had to coax it out of you. So I know you yeah. don't just share that with anyone. And it's, it's sort of, it's sort of special. And I appreciate that you did share it with me. So thank you, Tom. This is almost a serious topic, but I'll try to make it as funny as possible. <laughs> I really respect the protection you have towards your own privacy. As someone who's frequently called at ridiculous times of the day and night by model rail radio fans, I appreciate the privacy and the level of secrecy that you put into your online existence. So. You aren't approached by crazed fans on a regular basis. Uh, this is something that I need to learn fundamentally, particularly when I'm called, you know, 10.30 at night by people trying to work out Skype for their call to Model Rail Radio in the morning. In fact, we've actually stupidly tried to record around the time that Model Rail Radio was going to go on, and I was constantly being pestered by fans of said recording. But, I mean, this is semi-serious because I, I need to start embodying this level of privacy and certainly my wife agrees very solidly that the crazed model rail radio fans are uh, getting a bit too extreme. I suggest spending your free time, <laughs> not on the computer, but searching out action figures mm. in local stores. It's a shame you probably don't have a lot of train stores you can go into, right? 
alas. The only one I've almost been banned from. And the problem is, <laughs> the problem is they've got no respect, damn it. Anyway, let's, let's move on from that particular No, wait topic. a second. <laughs> You're the only person I know that gets kicked out of a, a model railroad store. That is awesome. You need a shirt that says that. Or, uh, me. Yeah. <laughs> the store is actually called the train store, which is what is it really surreal. Yes. Yes. Anyway, they're known okay. for their appallingly bad customer service. The phenomena associated with the train store, if we could digress into this thing, I think we need to do this every five or six recordings. I really like compliments time. I think this needs to be a regular thing. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit more about this train store. The thing about the train store is they only respect... Okay, let, let's take a step back. The San Francisco Bay Area is unique in a number of ways. The main way that it's unique is that there are a lot of really highly paid people that live in a relatively small area, which means that hobbies in this part of the world are actually a serious business. The train store expects you to pay on average between, well, typically about, you need to have about $5,000 on their books. It's a bit like a high-priced casino before you get any kind of respect going in there. And I've gone in maybe three or four times. I need to also point this out. The local train fraternity have a lunch on Friday thing that they do where they all go to the train store first. They all spend their money and then they all go to, it's not Chevy's, it's somewhere else that does tortilla chips. I can't think, but some store, it's um, TGI Fridays perhaps. Anyway, uh, what is it? Uh-huh. Anyway, they go somewhere. <laughs> I've gone one time, but they go somewhere and they all, they're like six years. Yes, I know. I know. I know. <laughs> okay, good. Anyway, so basically this, this store assumes mm. that people are going to go in. They're going to on average put between a hundred and five hundred dollars a week into the store. And if you don't do that, then you're the scum of the earth. So <laughs> I come Certainly. to this equation. It's a nice store. It's got interesting stuff. But what I like to do is whenever I have a model, maybe once every 18 months, sometimes sooner, I have model rail radio get togethers. I'm going to do one for show 150. I'm not sure. Did you see the video associated with, or the videos associated with show 100 of model rail radio? No. Like a train assembled through the ground floor of our house and I had a time delay set up on the mics up here. It went on for 10 and a half hours. It was like an epic podcast, basically. <laughs> Three separate recordings, total ten and a half hours for one single day. My wife had to be hospitalized afterwards. I'm not joking. She was virtually on deathbed following this thing. Because there were about maybe 80 strange men, very few of whom I actually knew previously, that came through our house for Model Rail Radio Show 100. We had a couple of people stay here. We had people fly in. Oh my god! Um, it. it was just this huge thing. So for show 100, I brought in some of the strongest, the, the force was strong in them, train nerds from all over the US. And I put them all in the train store. But historically, the first time I went in, which is how the ban thing occurred or nearly occurred, was I when I arrived here, I had a listener come through and we decided to do a bunch of layout tours here and meet a bunch of people. And we went into the train store, me and this guy called Matt Goodwin. And uh, I mistakenly took my cell phone out to film Matt Goodman in the train store. I didn't realize that there was a ban on cell phone cameras in this particular store. <laughs> and 
from that, I've never had particularly good standing in this place. I will say that when the owner isn't in, I have considerably better service. But honestly, it's just not my favourite place. One thing I like about this area, the one train shop in this part of the world that I will thoroughly recommend, there's an Ace Hardware in Berkeley. It's like a hardware store. Ground floor hardware store. Basement, it's a model rail store. Ace Hardware, I'm not sure, clearly you don't have this on the East Coast. But oh, yeah, Ace we are. Hard- you have Ace Hardware? Oh, they yeah. They have split purpose uses for these Ace Hardwares. And the one in Berkeley has a train store on the basement level. Beautiful place. Bunch of guys. A lot of the local, I mean, I've seen the closure of a lot of these places. Yeah, the, the train store, the one where I choose not to spend my money. That is a very curious place. It's a big store. It's packed. It's not like some of the ones on the East Coast. There's a place called Des Plaines Hobbies in Chicago, which I think is probably one of the best train shops I've ever been into. And that's just beautiful. It's got everything from, like, micro switches, all the electronic stuff. It's got a bunch of books. It has, like, miniatures and toy soldiers and figure painting stuff. I mean, it's an amazing hobby store. Now, my local place is not a, a friendly one, unfortunately. There's a place here. Um, it's called Nicholas Smith Trains. It's awesome. Mm. And it's, uh, yeah, the prices are good. But the people there, they're so, like, they're just into it and not at the level where, like, I go in. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm mm. like, I don't even know what gauge I'm getting, <laughs> you know. And I'm like, I, I need a few pieces of track here. They're so into it. They're so into helping you. And it's like they don't, you never get that, like, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> I don't have time for it, you know. Which yeah. is really nice. And yes, you can take your camera out and film anything in there. Right. And and then on the bottom floor, which all these years, I thought it was like an automotive shop. It's been there my whole life. So I never went in. And uh, I, I went in in the past year. It's like a huge toy shop. Mm. It's it's packed. You can barely even walk in there. But it's it's awesome. They had a, I saw a stormtrooper cranking a bubblegum machine ball. Wow. <laughs> I was like, oh, this thing is awesome. He like cranked it around. This and he has like a gumball and then and then it like, you know, it's like a gumball machine and then the <laughs> ball comes down. But I was like, why is a stormtrooper doing it? It's so awesome. The thing about hobby stores is oftentimes they're run by people who really have no business interacting with the general public. And certainly I found this in Vegas as well. There were some where they're just like clearly actually one of my favorite hobby stores in Vegas, which is closed down was run by a Korean-era army veteran and a World War II-era army veteran. And these were just really old guys. They were a bit they were a bit kind of crotchety some days, but they, in terms of history, I could just spend hours hanging out with them. I mean, I go in and I buy stuff as well, but two guys that have lived history selling train stuff, historical models, history books... They had um, radio-controlled planes hanging from the ceiling, which is something I always love in a hobby store. Yeah. But uh, unfortunately, the time came. They tried to get me to buy the shop, actually. I mean, they tried to get everyone to buy the shop. I wasn't special in this life. But um, <laughs> sadly, no. So, <laughs> Speaking of hobbies, one thing that I put down, I wasn't even really sure whether you did this. I just wanted to put it out there for the possibility. Building boats, model boats and life-size. Have you ever built boats? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, like, send them down the stream and stuff. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, we used to build them, and then uh, we'd actually put, like, figures in them, and there mm-hmm. was this good stream. It was like a creek, and it had, like, this pool area that the water would gather in, so that everything would, like, slow down before it filtered downstream, and we would just load up on rocks and just attack, you know, and... <laughs> We mostly would build them out of like cardboard or just, you know, like popsicle sticks, stuff like that. But and we would just smash them and uh, and see what boats could like make it make it through. Not many made it through. Mm-hmm. And you made yeah. them out of balsa or what did you make them out of? We would make them out of like um, a lot of times we get popsicle sticks mm-hmm. or but we'd also just make them out of like cardboard and mm-hmm. we put like duct tape on the bottom. Oh, yeah. So they'd stay afloat long enough. But, you know, they weren't going to survive long. And uh, sometimes we would put like um, balloons, like you would make like this boat and then you blow up a little bit of a balloon in the bottom and then tape like a flat area and then stand stand the figures up on that or tape them down on that. So it would really float. But, you know, they would capsize and stuff. But it was cool smashing them. My uncle made balsawood boats. And when I was relatively young, he passed a couple of them on to me. And I just studied them, and I I always had an interest in making things out of balsa wood anyway. Um, I think I made a plane. It's called Gallows. They still make these 1950s-era balsa wood planes. They're called Gallows. Um, and I made a Gallows plane with my father when I was probably about five or six that was rubber band-powered. And you'd twist up the rubber band and it'd fly for, you know. Those those things are awesome. 30-odd feet, if you're lucky. Oh, they're, they're so good. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> So I had an interest in balsa wood anyway, but when I would go to your favourite place, Adelaide, uh, I would. My, my uncle lived in the Adelaide Hills. He grew up uh, in the Adelaide Hills. You say it like it's nothing. I mean, the hills. That's. <laughs> I mean, gosh, it's wine, you know, wine and avocados, and mysteriously ramen noodles as well, which doesn't fit in with any of the above. Anyway, so he lived up in the hills, and for the early part of my. He had a girlfriend who kind of left him and he was single for, I don't know, maybe five or six years. And I used to go up and spend time with him. He had dams and these dams varied in size. When I was relatively young, I used to build the, or take his boats down and uh, I put in electric motors and stuff. And I was relatively good with gluing things and just getting things in order. So I'd make the boat go from one end of the dam to the other, usually with a nine volt battery and a, a motor and this kind of stuff. And then probably when I was about, I don't know, maybe 10 or whatever, I started building balsa wood boats quite seriously, but always associated with my time in Adelaide and when I'd go and spend time with my grandparents. I have a on my index finger on my right hand, which is the finger that they use for the green cards in this country. I have a long cut through it because Christmas, I don't know, 1989, I got a balsa wood thing and I was building a boat out of it and I woke up Christmas morning and was so excited that I put my finger down on the blade of the knife that I was cutting, you know, half asleep, just <laughs> exciting to build a boat kind of thing. So I built probably half a dozen, like, Viking longboat, never with plans. Like, the whole notion of people that build boats out of plans is not really my thing. And when I was, I don't know, when I was in Vegas, I decided I've got to build another one of these boats. I want to build another, like, electric-powered one. And you talk about rocks and things being destroyed. For me, it was brothers' or parents' feet. Like, I'd put these things on the ground. I'd be organizing stuff. I'd have to go and do something. Next thing I'd know, there'd be some snapping sound and someone had stomped down. In fact, my my <laughs> uncle had this probably, I don't know, 17-inch long sloop. 
And uh, I think one of my brothers put their foot through it. So I had to ah. cut it down and made it into like this strange kind of front hull only boat and all this kind of stuff. I mean, the benefit of balsa wood is in most of these things, you can kind of work out repairs. But my uncle had his own technique associated with how he built the boats. And I followed some of that, but I now have my own techniques, particularly associated with like the sanding and making of the hulls and things like this. I've always wanted to make full-size boats, but I've never built a full-size boat. Oh. It's something I've wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, I never got into, like, super detailed mm. boats. It was more, like, just to get it to float for about 10 minutes Practical. before wrecking it. But I do – I always eye them off. I, you know, Boscovs will always have boats sitting in, like, the front, these big boats. I'm like, man, I'd love to stick that in the lake and just mm. heave rocks at that sucker. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. I periodically, I, when I'm in a hobby store, buy a radio-controlled boat magazine. But my great frustration, I mean, in this country in particular, the reason that I built these boats in Australia was the UK, you can get propellers and rudders and this kind of stuff just because people build boats. Here, all the boats seem to be attached to, like, manufacturers. It's very difficult online in the US to buy rudders or propellers for specific stuff. It needs to be for, like, a branded boat, which is difficult. You were saying, hey, how, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, no you, you got me. Th- I was going to say before is why are ho- – there's a hobby store down the street for me. Oh, it's like 600% higher than online prices. I, I had to buy, like, a tiny bit of a end gauge track. I mean, it was like a three-foot section. I came out there was like, dude, I think I spent like $70. I was like, what? I was like, I'm calling the cops, man. Something just happened to me. I was like, this is such a ripoff. Why are they so expensive? Well, this is why the the Korean and Second World War guys' store had track from the 1970s at the very back. And when they were closing the store, I bought... You should have told me, actually. I would have sent you. I've got 200 bits of like three foot end scale track <laughs> in my attic essentially there's a section the, when i did the attic show there's like this long i don't know three foot thing which is about mm, six inches radius around that's all o scale track that a guy in australia bought and when i was in australia he's like can i sell you this track and i was like mm, i guess so i'm gonna use it at some stage perhaps so <laughs> the trick with track is when you know that you want it, allow for about a year and you'll find it eventually in some place that's just like randomly discounted. But yeah, when you need it and you have to go into a store, that's when they milk you. Basically. Oh, yeah, it was Christmas. I was like, of course, yeah. I waited till now. And I was like, all right. But uh, yeah, somebody gave me an N-Gage set, an engine and some, and, and some cars and stuff. And uh I actually, you know, I actually went and took pictures of old houses, like these um, historical buildings that were in like a park near me. And then I printed them up and shrunk them down and then made 3D models of the actual houses. Oh, that's that's, cool. that's the only in-depth thing I've done with like any detail to <laughs> model railroading. But that, it was horrible. Mm. Well, it's the process, right? It's the journey, not the... Oh, yeah. What it looks like when you arrive there, right? Oh, yeah. I guess. Let's hope so. <laughs> yes. Most definitely. Most definitely. So, a topic that I put out, it, it may fall flat on its face, but I thought it raised it anyway. And you have mentioned that you do like zombie-related TV shows, so I thought this might be a possibility. When the zombie apocalypse occurs, what are you doing before it, what are you doing during it, and what do you do after it? 
Well, okay, before it, I guess I'm just doing still looking at action figures and stuff in the store (laughs) because I don't know what's coming and I'm probably doing podcasts with you about pasta makers and stuff so Mm -hmm. then then as soon as I know about it there's got to be something good with uh I would get some car batteries or some some way to make like an electrical uh fence (laughs) Uh, uh, (laughs) around around an area you know Mm -hmm. so I could zap them and keep them out and um and then during it uh Oh, yeah. I don't know. I would be trying to come up with some way to like, uh, you know what? Uh, th- there's got to be some really good. I-, I would get a couple bicycles as soon as I could, you know, because mm-hmm. cars are going to run out of gas. And uh, I think bicycles would be really awesome. So I'd stock up on bike equipment and um, and spray paint. Uh, because, uh, if it's anything like the walking dead or any of that where the zombies can see you, I think you just run up and spray their eyes. Because I think that's how they they still see you with their eyes, I guess. So they're not smelling your brains? I don't know. I, I'm not sure. <laughs> so if they smell my brains, I'm going to have a lot of paint to get rid of. But mm. I just thought, oh, let's spray, spray paint these dudes' faces. <laughs> mm. <laughs> they won't be able to see you. Uh, and then after it, well, the, I, I will be dead. You're so sure of that? Yeah, they'll have eaten me, yeah. I love Yeah. Yeah, but I guess that's maybe you come back as a zombie, so I'm still around. So mm. I wonder if there's some. <laughs> I don't know. How about you? What are you doing? What are you doing during it? During it? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I guess I'm already prepping for the zombie apocalypse. I think I've I've followed the phenomena associated with just zombies in general, but really the zombie hysteria through a variety of really interesting angles. My perspective is this is currently a phenomena associated with zombie preparedness. I mean, you've got the existing kind of prepper communities, which are, you know, working out for survival in a wide variety of different circumstances. So I've already, like, viewed a number of podcasts, read a number of online, you know, documents and these kind of things. So I'm already in the well, if something happens, well, it's a bit like Trump getting elected, really. I mean, there were riots when he came through here. So when the election was coming up, I sent my wife, as she is currently, to go and live with her parents in the desert. So first thing one needs to do is send one's loved ones to safe places where there's a lot of firearms. And certainly my in-laws tick that box. Then during, I think it's actually a really interesting time. I'm very hopeful for apocalyptic situations i mean i really i've spent my entire life working towards an apocalypse of one form or another so having done all this research and all this background collecting of stuff this is where the attic comes in handy right (laughs) you've got to have stuff in the attic that will help you through the zombie apocalypse the one thing that i don't have which i'm really i I think i need to purchase i'm looking at my violin currently I've, i've got the music part of it sorted but i need to have another bow. I need to have archery equipment. I think firearms and these kind of things are all very good initially, but unless you're going to be... Are you familiar how they used to make gunpowder back in the day? No. So when the Chinese first came over to Europe, they had a wide variety of really strange ways to make gunpowder. Most of it actually comes from excrement, which is important to know. Lime plus excrement in most circumstances, will create something that'll explode. And, uh, yeah, it was basically a lot of... um, One of the texts has, 
people that drink particularly strong ales are very useful for, you know, urine collection and things like that. So there's a whole lot of really filthy ways that you make gunpowder, but assuming one isn't going to do that, and in a zombie apocalypse, you can't always be sure that there'll be really strong ales available. Archery is obviously the way to go, I think. So the one thing I'm lacking currently in my zombie apocalypse infrastructure and arsenal is archery. But as I am unofficially a student of Lee Webb's, I have every possible seed you would ever possibly need. A wide variety of other things I think would be relatively useful. Uh, various files and other equipment that doesn't require electricity. So my hope is through evasion, and I have a bicycle as well, which is a very good point that you make. So my hope is through evasion and also the fact that I don't think, I mean, maybe American zombies would understand Australian brains, but who knows? Like maybe it's delicacy, who knows? But my hope is that I could actually evade whatever apocalyptic creature, be they, you know, rabid anti-Trump people or zombies or what have you. Anyway, whatever apocalypse comes through, my hope is that I survive for a length of time at least. And I actually think the post-apocalyptic universe is almost like an Eden environment. I mean, sure, you've got, you know, occasional zombie outbreaks and things like that. But, um, I mean, for example, the attic is, a aside from the brick dust, which will kill me faster than it'll kill a zombie. <laughs> you know, I think there are, you know, there are optimistic things. So I've always optimistically thought, perhaps artificially, and as my wife regularly points out, I'm going to be the first person that anyone kills because I'm probably <laughs> relatively good eating and I'm a large target in any direction. And, you know, it's just not going to be difficult to end up cutting me up. So, and I fall over easily and a bunch of other stuff. So probably I'm going to be the first down. You're going to survive through it. If I can give you any wisdom, make bows and arrows. That's my piece of wisdom. I've always liked bows and arrows. I Very used good. to, even as a kid, um, I always, because I like the Rambo movies, so we, mm. I would fill up soda cans with red mm-hmm. food dye and water and shoot them from far away, and I got really good at it. But, you know, you need those blood special effects. But, yeah, bows are, bows are always awesome, man. Certainly. Yeah, I like that. they are banned within the city of San Jose. So, of all the things that they can ban... Bows are banned within the city of San Jose. So. <laughs> yes. Great. I need to have an illegal bow. That's what I need to do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Another question, which I think is relatively seminal in these series of possibilities. If you could make one computer game, what would it be? I am not telling you that. You have the abilities to make it. <laughs> You're going to well, take it me, and make okay, it. I might, okay, let me tell you my two, because they're okay. open source. Okay. The first one is a moderately apocalyptic game. It's called The Mushroom Boy. And it's an idea that a young kid develops a way to make a nuclear bomb and then basically has to work his way through a city environment, avoiding Secret Service agents. And there's a media component to it as well. But that's The Mushroom Boy. That's a long-term project. I got funding to make this in Australia in 1997, which is amazing because it's an urban terrorism simulator. Um <laughs> But, uh, yeah, no, I got federal funding to do it. But the problem was that they wanted to take a good portion of the intellectual property rights. And I said, no, not interested in that. So the Mushroom Boy is open source. The other thing that I, I, I'm a huge fan of wargaming, particularly electronic wargaming. And I like the Total War series. I'm not completely a fan of every aspect of it, but I really like various levels of command. Like you obviously have like a 
god general over everything. And then you have smaller, like, unit command and things like that. So I have also an open source uh, simulation called Noble Warfare, which is based on, you know, Roman up to probably Civil War era military conflicts and writing various rules for generalship and, you know, leadership all the way down uh, to the individual soldier in these circumstances. Because I find it genuinely, I mean, it's fascinating the way you write intelligent agents and the way various things in battles can evolve over time and what they call fog of war, which means that you can't always see everything. So your decisions are made by a variety of different factors and obviously morale and fatigue and all those other wonderful things. So they're the two that I maintain. Um, what do you know the name of the board game I, we used to have it i can't think of it it's it's like the roman empire mm-hmm. version of axis and allies it's a real similar oh. type game it's got as many pieces mm. we had it way before axis wow. and allies i don't know like, that one like someone gave it to a friend it's of it called mine. centurion no. i don't think it's centurion I, I i thought it was like three words three words i i, I could be wrong but um mm. Oh, it was awesome. We used to play it all all the time. Uh-huh. There was like, you know, everybody got a Caesar and you, you set up your armies and then you had to go and conquer and stuff like that. But mm. um, back back to board games real quick. So Have we- you ever played Electronic Detective? No. Okay. <laughs> I'm just curious. It's like an obscure electronic game from Mattel mm-hmm. from like, oh, dude, it's got to be like 1979 something okay. like that. What makes um, it particularly good? It's like it's for for back then for a just a basic electronic game. It's pretty in depth. It's cool. It's just like a uh, who done it sort of thing. You got to solve the murder, and you have all these cards, and you set them up, and it has like statistics of all these people, and they're all like your um, possible killers. Mm. And it, you, it all, you, it randomly picks a victim somehow, or okay. you put it. But there's like a whole like, f- if I remember right, there's like, it's like a phone pad, you know, like a dial pad, mm. and you enter all these numbers in, and then you ask it questions through that, and you, and there's all these places, and you can check off the list, and you go down, and like, you just really narrow it down. But it's cool. But the cards and the characters are hysterical looking, but. Yeah, it's I don't know. I I always thought it was a cool game. It was it was oh, my yeah yeah. It was just sort of always around. Yeah, Electronic Detective. Oh, that other game was cool. The the Roman Empire game. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, Axis and Allies. So I mean, that indicates your level of board game. Like there are certain levels of depth associated with board games. But if you say Axis and Allies, immediately that immediately. You know, gives I've played board games to this level. Basically. Yeah, I had a horrible experience with Axis and Allies. Uh, my my, the, it was the night before senior week. We all slept over my friend's house. Mm. We were all going to his beach house, and I had eaten rotten salmon. I never oh, ate no. salmon, and I have food poisoning <laughs> so badly. And my friends were like, we we spent all this time setting it all up, and there was a bunch of us, and we were ready to have this huge battle all night long. You know, the parents. Are away. We're mm-hmm. going to senior week. <laughs> We're going to the senior week in the villas of New Jersey. If anyone knows where uh-huh. that is, on the Delaware Bay. <laughs> so anyway, but I spent all night in the bathroom and mm. throwing up from both ends. It was mm. awful, and the, everyone was mad at me because they said I was faking it because I didn't really want to play. <laughs> well, How can you fake it, that? Well, first of all, things in, to fake. <laughs> 
later they knew I wasn't faking it. <laughs> but, oh, dude, I didn't eat salmon for like a decade and a half after that. It was awful, man. Mm. Yeah, but that was that was the last time I really got into. That was my Axis and Allies game, too. Mm. <laughs> it's, I still have it. But uh, what's, the, what's the other war game? It's like a more basic version of that. Um, not war. Uh, wow. I don't know. This risk. I mean, it's not a war yeah, game. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm the thinking of. Risk. risk. I never. Strategy yeah, and. Yeah. I don't I know. Never, I mean. Yeah. I never liked Risk, really. It was okay. Risk as a computer game is far better than it is a board game. I don't play played that. I've played competitive Risk as. Through university, even prior to university, you'd have amazing. Like, you talk about, you know, a table to write contracts for Monopoly. With risk, you'd create these amazing diplomatic, we're going to agree to be allies in this point. And then at some point, one of them, usually me, would end up backstabbing everyone and just conquering everything. And then after you've got a reputation for this, your risk games were always numbered. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think the war games, Axis and Allies is a good example. I have, I've had Axis and Allies probably, I think we gave it away, actually. It's a game where you need to have someone who's similarly into it to play. And I yeah. got it in married life, which means, I don't know, I'm trying to think of my, the only, the one time I've gotten my wife to play war games is when a childhood friend of mine came to stay. And he, I haven't told you about this guy, but he, he did a variety of things through his youth. He was able to redeem himself by publicizing the movie Shine. He disappeared for a period of time when I was 15. He was 15 as well. He, you know, ditched school. He basically, left school officially and piecemeal various things of his life together. But when he was 19, he used to play the card game Bridge. He walked into Ronan Films, and because he was a bridge player, he was able to get a job publicising this movie that no one had ever heard about called Shine. It was like this crazy thing about a piano player, like who's ever heard something like that. Anyway, obviously Shine went on to win Academy Awards and what have you. Yeah, anyway, so I knew this guy. After he publicised Shine, his one dream job, he was the guy whose family sent miniatures and miniature magazines over from the UK. So his dream job was to work for a miniature games company, which he did. And he worked in their stores, so he'd organise games and these kind of things. So he's organised, like, large-scale war games with five-year-olds, you know. He has this (laughs) ability to run these things. This is probably... That was the wrong way to illustrate this example, but I'm going to say it anyway. So he came to stay with us, and I thought, oh, this is cool, you know. He was here for three weeks. I'm going to go and buy some miniatures. He'll paint them, and we'll start playing war games. It's going to be amazing. Through this period of time, I know you're a fan of Apple TV. I'm not sure if I can talk too much about this, but it was basically the period of time leading up to the launch of Apple TV. So I was in work full time. Like, there was no time that I had off. My friend was here. We're going to do all the stuff. It didn't work out. So he and my wife spent three weeks hanging out together. And through the experience, he ended up playing war games with my wife. And then I'd come home and play periodically and this kind of stuff. So, yeah, the only time I've been able to play war games as an adult is when this childhood friend came and stayed with us for for three weeks. My hope was actually he'd come back and stay with us because he was going to the UK he spent um, a year or so in the UK, and he was going to come back to the US and stay with us before he went back to Australia. But it didn't work out that way. He found a girl and what have you, so went straight back to Australia, unfortunately. But that's the only time in my adult life that I've been able to play war games comfortably, which is why D&D Night is so important. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I got I got like three buddies. Two of them I see more than the other, but they are so into making up. We'll make up games at mm. the drop of a hat, and and they are just so into expanding on it and making rules. And it's like <laughs> I'm like ah, it, it, we don't hang out ever. But, you know, because we can't all get together, but it is those two of them were here for the Monopoly stuff, you know, but mm. it's it's I mean, even we were on the beach together and we had this huge elaborate game set up with a beach ball and mm. all these all these squares set up all over. And, you know, we usually get like a pretty good uh, bunch of people watching and stuff, you know, but it's yeah, I, I love making the games, you know, and I love board games and all that. So a final topic that I had down. Which actually I probably should have talked about last time, but the topic's kind of evolved in a, a variety of different directions. I've been to Disneyland three times in my life. The first time I went, when I went to LA when I was about 13, my father and stepmother lived in LA for about 18 months, but I came and spent a month with them. They were both working, so I went to school the whole time. I basically went to a junior high in LA for the month that I was there, aside from a trip to Disneyland that we took one weekend. And I went back when I was 24, I guess, 24, 25. And my wife, Disneyland is her culture. She lived in Brea. She lived very close to Disneyland her entire life. Well, not her entire life, but a good portion of it. So she, from a very young age, would go to Disneyland on a regular basis. So for her, she goes at least once a year, typically with her sisters or her mother. And she's got all these rituals and stuff that she does at Disneyland. And... You know, Disneyland for me is interesting, but I find that it's not really my place. The one ride that I love at Disneyland, and Disneyland, for folks listening in, is a series of like nine, some 1970s, 1960s era rides that are still all really explicitly racist and very, very curious in a modern day setting. And then, of course, the modern stuff, the Cars rides and things like this. But I actually like the older, politically completely incorrect Disneyland because that, to me, is just, it's strange in this kind of hyper-capitalist market that you can still have really quite disturbingly racist and sexist rides. But my favourite of the lot is It's a Small World. The Simpsons did a small homage to It's a Small World, but it's an idea of, you know, you're on a boat that travels through the various parts of the world with all these small animated figures that are singing... But it's all psychedelia. It's all psychedelic colours and strange animations, and it makes absolutely no sense. And from a very young age, I mean, from probably, and I blame my parents for this, I've always liked psychedelic art and things like that. I mean, from my parents would put Escher art up around me as a child, like a small child, and, you know, back, Beatles music wasn't psychedelic enough for me, so I would play it backwards from a relatively young age. I just like psychedelia in some really profound way. And it's funny, actually, because a lot of people in the broader psychedelic community have also converged on me, even though I'm not a psychonaut in any way, shape or form. But I have a lot of friends, particularly through Noble Ape, that go and speak at Burning Man and do all that kind of stuff. But the one thing I could never understand was my wife used to go to Grateful Dead shows. I mean, she is a quintessential psychonaut she followed the band jerry garcia and she had a little dog that would go to all the shows but she never likes it's a small world and for me it's a psychedelic affirmation it's one of the most curious rides you'll ever go on because it makes absolutely no sense and 
It's very explicitly racist in a number of areas. For a period of time up until the late 90s, there were no Jews in It's a Small World. I mean, there are a bunch of really curious footnotes through this thing. But for whatever reason, the, the two times that I went with my wife, she didn't like the ride. And I could never understand this thing. Then at the end of this trip, she explained to me a circumstance, which is why she doesn't like the ride. She went there through her teens frequently. And on one particular trip, she was there under the influence of certain psychedelics. And at the start of the ride was, I guess, so visually overcome that she lit up a cigarette, as you do when you're, you know, at the end of some amazing, you know, transference experience and proceeded to smoke the cigarette through parts of the ride until a man appeared and told her off for smoking the cigarette. She put the cigarette out in the water as a, you know, as a teen is likely to do. But I just thought this vision of my younger wife going through this ride in a sense of, I don't know, ecstasy from this experience was just a vision <laughs> that I wanted to share with our listenership. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So whenever you talk about Disney, I'm always taking it all in because I've never been, to, uh, never been. I think it's and, worth, uh, uh, my view is it's worth going at least once. And I, I mean, you have, you know, in terms of young children, it's certainly worth experiencing at least once. Yeah. I, I would like to go at least once. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I it's have no idea scary. what I'm in for. It's pretty scary. I mean, my wife has a procedure which is relatively scary associated with it. There's a kind of obsessive allocation of rides and things like that. The first time I went with my father and stepmother, my stepmother, we stopped for a drink somewhere and she was drinking a Diet Coke. She had a piece of glass in the Diet Coke. She cut her lip. Ah. She said very softly, there's some glass in my drink and I've cut my lip. And immediately, out of nowhere, a security guard arrived. Like, I literally said, you're having a problem, man. Let me fix this. Paid yeah. for the meal for all of us. Got her a new soda. It is the most surveilled area you will ever be in. And the notion of my wife smoking a cigarette on a ride as she goes under and immediately some guy <laughs> coming out of nowhere. It is a very, very strange place in that regard. It is the calorific content of all the food there is astronomically high as well. Like, it really is a satire of every aspect of Americana. For me, it's so culturally part of my wife's life that I find it difficult to satirize it heavily, although this small world ride, oh my goodness. I couldn't wipe that smile. I was smiling basically through the entire, because we went to Disneyland first, the entire trip just thinking of the It's a Small World ride. But yeah, the explicit racism and stuff is really very curious. It's, it's just I, very, very strange. I have no idea what I'm in for when I go. I've never oh, yeah. even looked looked up anything on the park or looked at. Mm. Any, I've never looked at anything. I don't even know what rides are there. You know, it's like a collection of really long waits. Like the ability talking about Esha, you go into these lines which double back on themselves and then loop around themselves and. We also, three of the rides we were on, they actually stopped the rides. Like, the rides actually broke down while we were on them. <laughs> and Because I, I like the older rides. I mean, I'm not interested. I mean, we went on cars and various other stuff, but I'm not really interested in the... They've got various 3D shooting rides, and we went on a couple of those. But the newer rides don't interest me. The really old rides, Haunted Mansion, the... Uh, what's it called? The Safari Cruise. The Safari Cruise, I'm surprised NAACP just hasn't protested that thing I mean, that is just, it's astonishing to me 
that a corporation can continue to do a ride that is basically every African racist stereotype just solidly. I mean, I'm surprised that, you know, these things are still allowed to exist. And it's a small world. It's surreal. You go through the Asian countries, they don't even attempt to speak a language when they're singing the song. It's just like a mocking of, you know, the way various languages sound. They're not actually words that the little creatures, the little animatronics are uttering. I'm a big fan. Sorry, continue. When you go through these things and you're saying rides, are they like, um, are you just in like a, I'm just picturing you in like a car on a track going slowly through some covered place with things popping out. This is, this is exactly what the majority of them are. Uh, The Pirates of the Caribbean ride is um, you're in a boat and that has, you know, you go up a bit and then they drop you down and they push you up and go up a bit and they drop you down. But most of it is just animatronics and you're in this darkened, environment with animatronics around you the haunted mansion which is another favorite of mine you're in i don't know they're not even like stagecoaches that are just kind of swinging around and jerking so you are seated for that the jungle safari you're in a boat as well there are lots of boats here i think they're not they're not like roller coasters and stuff like that there are roller coasters as well i mean there are california screaming and things like that yeah i don't know i mean i'm less interested in I, I like the historical aspects of the stuff. My wife and her sisters go on the roller coasters and we were waiting in line with the couple who were, I guess, in their fifties. And you see people like this. And I have a coworker that's had a season's pass for a period of time and go down. I mean, there are people that live and breathe and these are the people that buy timeshares and this kind of stuff as well. I have various participants and listeners model rail radio that are like east coast disney aficionados when we moved to the uk my wife's first experience actually we went to disneyland paris which was previously called euro disney that was really very very funny because it's basically a french interpretation of disneyland and they are really really hostile (laughs) i learned french for four years and i never i only speak french in times of conflict I was speaking French fluently through Disneyland Paris. Like, why can't we get a seat? There's no one here. You can't tell me that this, you know, this restaurant is all booked up because there's no one seated here, you know, and except I was saying that in French. I mean, French cuss words that I forgot I knew and things like that, I immediately picked up in Disneyland Paris. (laughs) Because they really are, like, taking... It's amazing juxtaposition of French dislike of American culture in Disneyland for. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is funny. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's my list of notes for this evening. Is there anything you just want to rap about, or are you ready to call it a night? I think I'm going to eat some cake. Very good. I, I, <laughs> I think I'm done. I think I'm going to have a big piece of cake right now. I should point and, out. Uh, from prior discussions, I am living a bachelor life currently. So I have a slow-cooked Korean chicken downstairs. There was a Korean market that opened, and I bought this packet, which is a collection of roots, wood, and the three chili peppers that I've stuffed inside a chicken that's been slow-cooking for the evening. So that's oh. what I am going to enjoy this evening. Hey, do you have seeds for Lee Webb's peppers? No, I don't. I was going to ask if you could get those. Oh, I'll get them for you because I'm going to go over to pick some up. I'll probably go over tomorrow and pick them up. Terrific. Terrific. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's yes. right. I got I to gotta remember I'll that. send you my postal address as well, which is my work address, because everything gets stolen that's sent to my home address by package thieves. 
Oh, okay. Send me that because I ripped your return address off the box because I have something to send you. Oh, okay. I'll give you my my work address, which is a lot easier to do. To rip. Okay. Thank you. Okay. And I can awesome. do an unboxing by the next show or the show following. I'm looking forward yes. to that. Oh, Definitely. dude, yes. I've, I've <laughs> yeah, got a, I've, look, I have my unboxing knife ready. Let me let me see if I can do the... <laughs> now i got to put it in a box. Click? There we go. Ready. <laughs> Prepared. Yes, I love it. I love it. Oh, man. I'll All talk right, to you well, Thomas. Week, enjoy your cake. Been, yeah, enjoy your evening. <laughs> Pleasure as always. Talk to you soon. Yeah. Take care. Yeah, cheers.